Hi there, this is Gospel of Kennison number three, oh no, 132, and it's brought to you the week of July the 8th, 2020. My name is James Kennison. Welcome to the Gospel of Kennison, otherwise known as GOK. We've been doing a series called Podcast My Life, and this is part four. Sorry for the delay. Where I left you off, um, my friend David was leaving for Kansas City, and me and my wife, my new wife, were on our way to Florida um, to attend a, a, a college down there. And so that's exactly what we did. We moved, and we got down there, and we lived in a little apartment, and um, I... <laughs> I, the, the most spectacular thing that happened is that we moved from Florida to Missouri where they have hills. And I remember my wife asked the lady, can we, can we uh, rollerblade around here? And the lady was like, I guess. So we moved to our new apartment and we got on our rollerblades and we started going downhill. And we started going so fast that um, we couldn't stop. My wife had enough sense to to duck into the grass and save herself. But me, I kept going faster and faster until I realized I was going to die. I was going to run into a truck or I was going to fall. And I started to try to drag one of my skates behind me to kind of slow myself down. And I immediately fell over, hit my head really hard, had to walk all the way back up to the apartment. And I swear to you, I saw fishes swimming in the air and stuff like that. I probably should have gone to the hospital, but I gave myself a mild concussion. Um, so, uh, actually that was a story from Missouri. Ah, <laughs> uh, anyway, in Florida where everything was flat, that's where we picked up rollerblading and I went to school for a whole year and, um, that's all the college I have is one, one year of college. And, um, and, and not a lot happened there. I mean, we, we tried to make friends with people. We tried to get involved in churches there. I did a little bit of children's ministry for this small church, um, made some connections there and, and stuff. Uh, but uh, we got invited by David Godbout, who I mentioned in the last episode, to come out to Kansas City to paint a mural. And this was a big mural um, that was supposed to take, it was on a curtain that was easily 55 feet wide and about uh nine foot tall and it was mostly black and so we started by painting the entire thing black and then i painted um uh a, a mural of jesus's eyes and lightning on on the earth and lightning coming out of his hands and it was supposed to be the super powerful image of jesus and power and um i i didn't realize at the time but the uh, youth ministry who was who were going to make use of this mural also shared space with the children's ministry. And, and my mural became known as the scary Jesus mural because it was scary for the kids. So there you go there. That's what I get for trying. But while I was there, I really got uh, an inside look at the ministry and the church that was known as Sheffield family life center. And, um, I really felt drawn to that place and to working with my friend David. And so when our time uh, was up, 
and the mural was done, I just flat out asked him, would you say no if we moved up here and I started following you around, you know, and, and, and doing stuff with you? And he said no. And so we did. We moved up there. And uh, that's when I went down the hill on my <laughs> skates <laughs> and almost died. That was like one of the first things we did it's when we moved to Kansas City. Um, and and I started working at Sheffield Family Life Center, which is a at the time was a church of, of 5,000 plus people. Um, it was 20% white, 20% black. I'm sorry, uh, 40% white, 40% black, 20% Asian, Hispanic. I think that was the the breakdown. And uh, it was totally uh, a different world than I was used to. Um, Diversity, obviously, uh, both both racially and economically. And um, here I am, this southern born and raised white boy, Suddenly I'm doing bus ministry. I'm, uh, at, at schools doing, um, you know, uh, what do they call those things? School outreaches, I guess is, is the only name I could think of right now. And, uh, I, I, I learned a lot. I learned a whole lot. I learned a lot about black culture and, um, how, how life is for black people and how hard it is and how simple my views were on the subject because I simply didn't know, but I had made up my mind about how things were. Um, but I'm going to tell you, it was, it was hard. It was hard to make the change because, you know, I, I, I don't know. I would, I'd be sitting to a, talking to a kid. I remember one kid in particular, and he says, you know, this just happened the other day. He was, playing basketball with his cousin and he went up for a layup and came down shot in the head, uh, from a drive by and the kids, you know, crying. And, and I'm like, what do I do? How do I compare? You know, what have I got to give to this kid? You know? And, and I really started worrying about that because, you know, the, the heroes of a lot of inner city youth are, uh, sports stars and music artists. And that's pretty much it. Um, and I'm like, how can I compete? What do I have to offer? You know, how, how can I just this silly white boy from the South have anything to offer? And it was like, God told me, well, you've got presence. You're there. You're real. And they'll never meet these people. And these people don't know their name. And these people will never connect with with these kids. Um, but you will. And that's what you have over them. And, and that was a huge uh, awakening in me. It helped me get over myself quite a bit. Because I realized even at my worst, I, I was still there. I was there listening. I was there to hear and to offer support in a way that the famous people can't and nothing against them. You know, it's just, they, they can't be there. They don't, they can't know their names and, and can't connect with them. So I did an internship for two years 
and a lot of it was on on buses um every wednesday night i would get up and go uh you'd make phone calls to to call and see who was coming to wednesday night service the youth group was called wage and war it's very cool w-a-j-n w-a-r it was done all in street graffiti it was super cool and um now that the church was 40 40 20 but the youth group was i want to say 90 percent black and the only problem we had with that was that it didn't reflect the neighborhood and it didn't reflect the 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 makeup of our church and um that was because the bus ministry was established just to pick up kids in um in certain areas and so we made some changes and we picked up kids in a a closer radius to our church Cause we were driving way, way out to pick up kids from other neighborhoods. And, um, there wasn't any, I don't know. We, we talked about our reach exceeding our grasp because we could reach out and touch a lot of kids, but could we grasp them? And, and you, you can't, you have to be able to, you have to, your, your grasp doesn't outreach your reach. Your reach is further than your grasp. So we, we picked, a um, a, 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 a line of houses uh we picked a north and a south and an, and an east and a west and we redid our bus routes and we even went to the extreme to try to find the kids that we were letting go uh churches of their own um, our church even paid for a year of busing to those other youth groups that were in their neighborhoods um so in my mind we did everything we could to really make that change as painless as possible. But um, as a result, our, um, our our youth group did become a bit more uh, integrated. And what we needed was more white kids uh, because that's what our neighborhood was uh, you know it consisted of and we needed we needed more hispanics too so we had a few but not not nearly as as many as you want because the more the better you know um but we did that for two years i would call and find out who was coming and then we would go on the bus about an hour and a half early and ride around and pick up all these kids and and i wouldn't drive the bus i was what was called a bus pastor i never liked that name but you did, you kind of pastored those kids. Those were your kids. And, uh, you, you knew where they lived. You'd go visit them during the week. You would, uh, you know, connect with them and you would make sure they behaved on the bus. And there were always kids that were super good. And there were always kids that were super bad. And really the only difference between a super good kid and a super bad kid was the relationship you had with them. And I learned a lot about making said, you know, hooking up, hooking um, or connecting my life with their life. And there were a lot of conversations on that bus, especially on the way home after youth group um, with, with kids uh, because I had a pretty diverse group. I had, I had white kids and black kids and, um, a couple of Hispanic kids 
and they would really open up after service. But anyway, it, it was it was good. It was a good time. It was one of my best times. It was the hardest I've ever worked in ministry, but also the best, you know, uh, memories from those times. But it was it was difficult because the kids were rough and they were hard. Uh, but I found out that that was just an outside thing. Um, the the kids put up a front um, so that they could protect themselves because life was tough for them, and they couldn't couldn't let any kind of kindness show or uh, softness uh, or any part of their heart show. They had a protective shell around themselves. And um, the the trick was that every kid was like a cryptex. I don't know if you've ever watched, uh, oh, what's the movie? A movie that everybody freaked out about. Well, anyway, there's a cryptex in the movie, and it had Tom Hanks in it. And um, a cryptex is a secret coded box and it has a message inside and you have to have the right code to be able to open the box because inside the box is not just a message. It's wrapped around a glass vial of vinegar. And if that, if you try to force it open, the vinegar bottle will break and it will destroy the message inside. And I always said kids were like a cryptex. Um, they are, you have to figure out what makes them tick. You have to get inside their head a little bit. You have to get to know them. You have to find that code. Because if you try to force it open and you try to force a relationship, if you try to force a connection, if you try to force behavior, um, you're going to end up breaking what's in there and you'll never get to find out what they're really made of. And so, uh, I learned a lot and I'm, and I didn't do it all perfect. Um, some kids that I started out yelling at and, and trying to face off with thinking that that was the way to get their attention and their respect. I found out that was not right. And I was able to correct that in some, in those cases. Um, and some kids, not so much. But uh, I tell you, it served me well, served me well. And, and um, eventually I was hired as an assistant youth pastor, uh, focusing on young, uh, middle school. I, I know you're going, James, I can't believe you were a middle school pastor, the way you feel about middle schoolers. Yeah, it, it, it takes, a, uh, takes a certain kind of passion and a certain energy level. But I saw a huge need for it in our church because we had a, a great children's department that was so great, in fact, that it was holding on to kids well past the elementary days. And they were staying in there through sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and to the point that they were afraid to transition into the youth group, which in their mind was mostly black, mostly inner city, mostly scary. Um, because unlike the youth group, which was mostly, uh, neighborhood kids, not church kids, it, there were a lot of church kids, but mostly neighborhood kids, uh, the children's church met on Sunday. So it was almost all, uh, church kids. And, uh, again, 20 or 40, 40, 20 split on, on that because the children's church did reflect the permit, the, uh, the, the, 
diversity of our congregation because none of the kids gave themselves a ride. They all had to ride with their parents and their parents were the same color as them for the most part. Um, so I was able to step in as a middle school pastor and try to bridge that gap um, between the two. And we would have services um, on Sunday during Sunday service and uh, try to attract a few of the kids to, to come to that. And it was very successful. It was called um, Rampage. And I, I used the Rampage logo from the video game Rampage. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, I, t- I taught and we did music and, you know, uh, lessons. And we had a good group of middle schoolers that did eventually come on over to the other side. Uh, a year later, after that, um, one day, a uh, pastor came in, one of my boss pastors, his name was Pastor Horn. He came into my office. He says, I want you to pray about this. I want you to... Um, to pray about becoming the children's pastor here at Sheffield. And I said, I don't need to pray about it. Um, I'll do it. And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, because um, a year before that, you know, when I took the assistant uh, youth pastor position, I don't know, God just kind of dropped that in my heart once and said, you know, basically, would you like to be children's pastor if it came available? And I went to my wife and I told her about it and she got mad at me. I remember she was like, why, why would you want somebody else's job? Why would you, you know? And I'm like, I'm not (laughs) coveting it. I'm not, you know, taking it. I'm just, I'm just asking the question and I'm kind of answering, you know, would that be something we would want to do if it came up? And she said, yes. And I prayed about it. And I said, yes, as well. And then we forgot about it for a year. And then the guy comes into my office and asks, and I said, yes, right there. And then the transition was not a clean one. It was not very easy. Um, The pastor that had been there was being replaced. And um, he had started out doing great things. And then he had gotten just a bit over spiritual and the the services stopped becoming fun for the kids, and they started becoming, um, I don't know, they just they they'd meet in a darkened room with a haze in the air, uh, with spotlights and stuff. Um, there would be, you know, slow worship music playing, and there there would be a lot of uh, prophesying and a lot of talking in tongues, and a lot of um, just really deep kind of spiritual stuff that um, usually goes right over the heads of most elementary school kids. It had kind of grown up in my opinion with the kids that had stayed that I mentioned earlier, the ones that were staying through sixth, seventh and eighth grade, the the ministry had aged to accommodate those kids and, and had kind of forgotten about the kindergartners that were in the room and the first graders and the second graders. And the pastor that had been there was a great guy. He had been there for, I want to say, 13 years and had a very strong group of workers that were very faithful to him, um, almost more to him and his personality than they were to the children and the ministry um, to the point that when we made the transition and I got the job, 
and and he was moved into middle school. That was the that was the attempt anyway, was to try to get him into middle school since that's the kind of ministry he was doing. Let's let's switch places. Um, a lot of obviously his folks went with him. I was left with almost no workers. I was uh, whispered about and talked about and dogged out. And um, another thing about the pastor is he was a, a pack rat and um, kind of a hoarder of, of things. And so uh, the building that he had made use of was full of, of stuff, just stuff, just random stuff, nothing, nothing bad, just stuff like batter's helmets. And um, they had a whole room full just for, for candy that they were supposed to give out to the kids. Um, but the rats had gotten to it and stuff like that. So, you know, it just needed to be cleaned up and I got in trouble and there was a lot of dumpster diving that w- that went on. Uh, his people would go in after me after I'd cleaned out and they would pull stuff back out. And um, I didn't care. I was, I was kind of on top of the world actually, because I was always felt like I was supposed to be a children's pastor. And here I was a children's pastor um, of about 350 kids. And I was way in over my head, didn't know what I was doing and, and clueless. Um, But I knew I had a job and they wanted me to make children's ministry fun for the kids because the kids had been reporting that it was scary over there. It wasn't fun. And um, I had learned enough working under David Godbout to know how to do that, how to, how to do that. So that's what we did. We started Jam City, which just stands for Jesus and me. And uh, we started having services. And I met with all the workers that would, that would, that would come over. And, and there were a few uh, that, that stayed. And I would say they were the kind of people that prioritized the kids over the personality of the pastor. And there were people that were uh, hateful toward me. And those were the people that, you know, really liked him. And I was never hateful to him. I never said a bad word about him. Still have nothing bad to say about him. Um, but you know, his people, there were, there were a couple of groups. And like I said, what some of them wanted to be with him, no matter what others wanted to be with children, no matter what. And others were, newer and and so therefore not connected really enough to anyone to really have an opinion and they were just uh ready to do whatever and so uh you know maybe some of them were even new because they were attracted by you know just hearing about the changes that were coming and figured it was a good time to step in so uh, I did a lot of training. I did a lot of, uh, you know, telling people, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to change. And then on the last meeting, I, I was probably way too much of a butt. But I said, listen, at this point, if you don't have a job, um, I hope you enjoy the main service. Because um, there was a lot of people that were in the meetings that were not signing up for positions that I needed because I needed people that wanted to connect with kids. And there were a lot of folks in his ministry that were doing things that had nothing to do with connecting with kids. Like for instance, one of them was just writing policies and procedures 
And and that's great. That's great that you have that. But I didn't need somebody to do that. Um, there was another one that was just monitoring the candy situation. And I didn't need somebody to do all that. It didn't seem like it was that big of a job. I, I What I wanted to do was take the group, divide them into um, five groups. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Um, have at least two adult leaders in each of those grades. So, you know, about 50 kids per group, uh, two ki- two adults over each one of those groups. And those people would be like the bus pastors that, that I was in, in youth group. Um, I, as the pastor, would not be able to know every kid. Um, I would not be able to connect with every child individually. Uh, but I wanted someone in the room to be able to. That was my, my thing is somebody here ought to know these kids as well as they can. And so that's what uh, the small group leaders became for their kids. And uh, we would do a service and then we would dismiss and they would go to different classrooms for pickup because it was a lot easier to find your kid in a group of 50 than a group of 350 after church. And, uh, you know, so our needs changed and, and uh, I told the people this, and a lot of them were still holding out for their job, for their special thing that they did for the other guy. And uh, so that's why I told them what I did. I, I just said, you got to go to service if you're not signed up yet. And so I lost a lot of people that day. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I had, I had a pastor friend tell me sometimes you have to flush the toilet. <laughs> so I don't know that these people were toilet material. But um, it was definitely the leftovers of a, of an, of a different way to do ministry um, that wasn't, you know, where we wanted to be at the time. Those folks needed to be in church, I think. So um, anyway, so that was, uh, that was my life for the next uh, eight years is uh, doing children's ministry for 350 kids plus 99 kids in junior jam and plus the midweek service uh, where I was over Rangers and Missionettes and I was, I had 136 volunteers. Um, I had the entire thing written up on a dry erase board, every need that we had so that when somebody came and asked me, what could I do in children's ministry? I would, I would be able to tell them, Oh, we need two more people in missionettes or we need somebody in jam city, or we need two people in Juniorville. And I would actually be able to connect people directly with, you know, the, what was needed. And, uh, but I remember out of that 136 people that we had, we had about 160, uh, volunteer spots that were open and, uh, or, or, you know, in total. So do the math. There were about, we were about 30 people light the, the entire time I was there. But you, you you almost never have all that you need. You you have close and we, we got by and we did good. Um, So I, what I wrote down was there were drama and there were wins. And that's, that's exactly the way it was. Um, While all the drama of being the guy that supposedly took the other guy's job 
And, and, you know, even though I was blameless in that, I didn't go after it. I didn't ask for it. Um, you know, I, I, I was still hated by so many people, uh, that were involved in the old version of the ministry. Um, but there were a lot of wins and, and the wins were, uh, that the kids got, um, a, a quality children's ministry experience. I, I went and during the transition, I went and interviewed the, uh, sixth, seventh and eighth graders about children's church. And, um, I even talked to some of the youth, you know, that, that I was with about it. And they would tell me stories about, um, being scared and having a dark room that they would walk into and, and visitors would, they would say, you know, the first time I was there and this was happening. One girl in particular, I remember told me that she was being molested and, but the, the big scary white man on the stage was not somebody she could talk to about it. And that's when I realized I needed small group leaders because who knows, I might become the scary white man, the, 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 the guy that you think, you know, but you don't really know enough to talk to. And that's just the reality of a big church. Um, uh, the, 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 the old pastor was really into hating on pop culture. So, you know, Harry Potter was preached against Pokemon was preached against Harry Potter. Did I say that already? Yu-Gi-Oh, um, you know, anything like that. And so we switched it up and started talking about salvation and Christianity and, and character issues and the fruits of the spirit and, teaching kids how to live out the Christian life and how much God loves them and, and how much, uh, you know, he has in store for them. And the kid, the, the ministry grew and we actually outgrew our, our room that we had. Um, we outgrew it in a number of months and which was a shame because it was a dedicated space and we had a full set that we had built that I had designed and it was really cute. We had to move to a chapel that seated uh, 500 people, and um, they took a few chairs out because it, it it was too crowded with 500 chairs in there. But um, so there's probably 450 chairs, and like I said, about 300 350 kids, and um, we had a good time. It was crazy, but it was a good time. Um. I could go on for, for hours about all of the stuff that we did in children's ministry, but just know this, it was a huge part of my life. And it, when I look back over my life, that is still the highlight is the time that I spent as pastor at Sheffield family life center. Um, just, you know, helping kids to learn about God and doing it in the most creative uh, ways as possible with almost no limits, you know? Um, my daughter was born in during this time. I was 30 when she was born, uh, Jenna Elise Kennison, and she was the most precious thing in the world. And I was the first person to touch her outside of her mom. And I guess a nurse, <laughs> but I have it on video camera or video. It wasn't a camera. It was a phone. Um, you know, my new video phone, 
and uh, she she changed me. I remember when we went in for the first uh, sonogram or whatever, and we heard that heartbeat for the first time. And I I swear to you, I aged five years, just right there, just matured five years. Because suddenly I was going to be a dad. And it wasn't that I was going to be a dad. It was like I already was a dad. The baby was there. It was just a matter of time kind of thing. I also started podcasting around that time. Um, you know, about when Jenna was two. So uh, I started in December of 2006 with a show called Nobody's Listening. And my brother David and I decided, hey, let's share the stories from our crazy, messed up childhood <laughs> as comedy. And uh, it, 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 it took off. It didn't take off right away, but it, it did, you know, it did. Unfortunately, he had issues of his own with his life. Um, and he wasn't able to stay with the show, but um, after fumbling with a bunch of co-hosts and guest hosts and things like that. I was able to, to knock it down and, and nail it down and get some regular, uh, co-hosts in there, Trevor being one of them. And then John later on, um, around the same time as when I started getting a general feeling of doom, which I now look back on and see as the beginnings of my depression. Um, I thought it was the job. I thought it was just the stress of the transition. And I started counseling. We had a counseling pastor and he's awesome. Still does his job there at the church. And, um, he's amazing. And he helped me a lot. And I think he helped, uh, prolong my life (laughs) at, at this place. Um, but eventually it just got, it got too hard to do the job and I didn't know about depression. I thought it was just me not being able to do the job. And so I figured we needed to down downgrade. And, um, there'd been some changes at the church. The, the senior pastor who hired me had stepped down and his son had taken over and things were just different, you know? And, um, so my wife and I sat down and said, what do we want to change? And we wanted to raise our kids near family. So that immediately meant moving somewhere between Florida and South Carolina. Uh, I also felt like I needed to downgrade the size of church that I was a part of. Cause I, like I said, I didn't know what depression was. I just assumed it was work related. Um, so long story short, I got a job in Florida and uh, St. Petersburg at uh, Suncoast Cathedral. And we moved down there. My son was born by, by that time. Um, Jay was awesome and continues to be awesome. But moving from an inner city church to a mostly white uh, upper middle class church was quite an adjustment. <laughs> I I was uh I was I was definitely an inner city pastor by that point and had 
had become pretty rough around the edges as you have to be. Um, I don't know that there was a week that didn't go by at Sheffield that I didn't end up having to yell at somebody because they wouldn't obey the rules and regs. And it, it was just people being ghetto is all people taking their kids without signing them out, you know, stuff like that. And you have to yell because you don't know if they're even supposed to have those kids or did they just grab some kid? And, and there were always issues uh, of custody that we had to constantly update and worry about. We had a computer check-in system that helped us monitor such things. And it was a very common thing for a non-custodial parent to come by and pick up their kid and steal them from the custodial parent. It was very common. And so it was a very big deal. Checkout was like like the hugest security thing that we had to deal with. Uh, I'll never forget. I was up there preaching one time and, and this guy and this girl comes in and uh, they start talking to some kids that I knew very well. I knew them very, very well. And I knew their parent. I do. I knew that they they didn't live with their dad. And this dude's talking to him. And then suddenly, the kids get up and start to follow him out. And I was like, "All right, we got an emergency. All my leaders, get the door. Stop those people. I'm sorry if I'm being rude, but you need to stop right now." And I had to go out there in the middle of service uh, while one of my leaders took over and talk to them and tell them. And I would have been a lot rougher now than I was then, but. Um, you know, they, they, he had just gotten out of jail and wanted to see his kids and was going to take them somewhere. And it's like, no, <laughs> what kind of trouble would I be in if, if mom comes back and, uh, the kids are missing, you know? So, uh, it, it was, it was quite a big deal, but going from that kind of world where, you know, where, where I would be, I would yell at people and it wouldn't even mean anything to a world where, if I said something that was even slightly seen as offensive, I, they would go tell the pastor on me. I, I, I was not the best choice for this place. <laughs> oh, man. One time I got onto a couple of parents because they were always the last people to pick up their kid. And I'm not talking about the last person. I'm talking about 20 minutes after the last kid got picked up. This, these people would finally get their butts around there to pick up their kid. And it was to the point that the daughter would be in tears because she would be all alone and we would be waiting for them, you know, so that we could go get our dinner and I would send all the other workers home and, you know, we'd been cleaned up for, for an hour and, and, and I got on to them, dad gummit. And they went and told on me and I had to apologize and, and the way I am built, I had to figure out a way to apologize that could be real because I wasn't going to do a fake apology. I wasn't just going to do it to get it out of the way. It had to be real. And I had to figure out what I was sorry for. And so I figured I was sorry for the way I did it, that it was a little rough and that I shouldn't have been so angry. And so I apologized for that. But I told them they still need to pick up their kid on time. And to their credit, they did. And uh, their butts did not need to be kissed. They needed to be spanked because they were some selfish people that were so selfish and self-centered they couldn't even put their kid, you know, on on the on the register of things that they should have been dealing with and thinking about. They were so so social. 
that they they didn't care about all the people and my people that they were keeping at church late. But anyway, it was a different world, let's just say. And um, I followed a guy that was very into um, flag teams and um, worship bands and um, dramas for the kids. Basically, he did a lot of showy stuff. And that's not me. Um, (laughs) We didn't do puppet teams and dance teams and flag teams and all that. I, I just, I just preach and the kids have a great time and we make connections and it's real and they go home and they live out what we taught. You know, there's not a lot of that extra stuff. Um, so I don't know how, how much, how many of the parents seem to like me. They, they seem to like me, but I don't know. I don't know that some parents did because suddenly their kids that were the star of the show didn't have a place to shine anymore. And to me, that's not you caring about what um, the ministry is doing. That's you caring about, you know, your students part in the ministry. Um, my, my depression kind of reset. It was weird because being there, everything was new. Everything was exciting. Um, you know, I, I was, I was on medication, but I was trying not to be. And, um, but eventually the the darkness started creeping in again and I ended up going to a doctor and then the doctor said, I can't do anything for you. You need a psychiatrist. And so I went to a psychiatrist and I was, I was very ashamed. And so I kept it secret and um, I tried to hide a lot of what I was going through. Um, but while all this was going on, I got opportunities to minister in other countries. Um, I got asked to go out to Spain and do children's ministry for a bunch of uh, missionary kids. Every year, the the missionaries in Europe, Eastern Europe, would get together, and all their kids would get together, and they would have church services and have Thanksgiving dinner together. And I got to go out there and be the minister for the missionary kids because missionary kids don't typically get to go to typical church and they definitely don't get typical children's ministry. And so it was really cool. And they were so, they were like sponges. They were just so in, into everything we did and everything we did was like a, a really, um, played down version of what was possible in America because, you know, we, we could only bring over what we could fit in our, our luggage and, uh, you know, I had a hard time getting simple craft items like, uh, popsicle sticks and stuff like that in Spain. It just, it just don't have stuff, you know, but, um, we got to do that. And then, um, like a year later, I got an opportunity to go to Ireland with the young adults and, uh, they, they handled, um, youth ministry and I did the middle school ministry and I ran it just like a children's church and, um, and it went over great. I don't know why, but it did. And I still have, at least I have one kid that still stays in contact all these years later. He's grown now. Um, but it was, it was such an impact on him and it was great going to Ireland. It's just like the postcards. It's beautiful and the people are great. 
and um, apparently they they uh, they fight and drink a lot. So I don't know. That's just what I heard. <laughs> we didn't have to deal with any of that though. We just had a good time. We we met in a building that was um, housing owls and stuff. Yeah, owls. And uh, we we had to clean up the place, and because uh, it smelled like owl poop, and there was owl poop all over the floor. So we scrubbed the floors, and the floors were wet. And I'm like, open the windows and the doors so we can dry this place out. But uh, the 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 humidity in Ireland it was so rainy that the the place stayed wet for hours, and hours and hours and hours. And and uh, I don't know how we ever got that place dry, but and smell free but um there were no owls in the building at the time but during during the uh regular operations of that uh facility that we were at, where we were at owls were in the building so um so uh definitely definitely was depression was building more and more to the point that I'm, I'm still embarrassed to talk about it, but I would, I would steal naps. I would find a place in the building to sleep because I would be so tired and I would be so out of it. Um, my wife came to work with me at, uh, at, at church and that kept me going for a little bit longer. Um, she was able to help do some of the more mundane things that I wasn't capable of doing. It was, um, I've got it written down here. It was like ministry in slow motion. And in the middle of this, I turned 40, which wasn't a big deal. But um, I got sent to Florida for a children's pastor, or a, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I was in Florida. It was some sort of ca- uh, convention. And I ended up bumping into a lot of friends down there. Uh, that that were from Sheffield and uh, talking to them and even ran into David, um, ran into my old boss from Sheffield, the pastor there. And, uh, you know, he, he said some kind things and, and David said some really great things and, and it, it really helped uh, a lot. Every, everything that, that could be done, was being done to try to keep me in my job. But, um, I eventually went to my pastor and I told him, I said, look, um, I did, I never told you about my, this thing that I have because, and it wasn't because I was trying to hide it from you. It was because I didn't think it was real. I thought it was part of my job at, at Sheffield but I deal with depression and I, I went in there fully expecting to be let go and, and willing to step down. But he was really cool about it. And he's like, it's not a big deal. I understand. Um, and that helped quite a bit. I ended up going back several more times. One of them was when I started seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, Cause I, I just felt like, I, I hated myself. I mean, I, I was so, so ashamed. I remember the first time I went to the psychiatrist, I felt like a crazy person. I, I just sat there with my eyes shut for um, 
45 minutes in the waiting room, not wanting to look at anybody, not wanting really anybody to look at me was what it was uh, because I was a crazy person. And um, I, I guess just long story short, it, it, my job became impossible to do and I couldn't fake it anymore. And so I went to my pastor one last time and I said, look, I, I can do services for some reason. I can still do Sundays, but in my, in my office, I just close the door and I cry and I pray to God that nobody comes in and walks in on me. I'm, I'm, I, 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 can't hardly even get out of bed to come in in the mornings and I can't deal with people's crap right now. And I can, can we just go to a period of time where I just do Sundays and he said, yes, but he needed to talk to the board after the board meeting. He had a meeting with me. And he sat me down and started asking me a lot of weird questions like, was I even called to his church? And I didn't get it at the time, but these were questions that were put to him by the, by the board. And um, it turned out that basically the board ran the church. And that they were not as compassionate as my pastor was. And I saw the writing on the wall. I saw the future. And the future was that I was going to be called to the carpet in front of them. I was going to be reprimanded and given an ultimatum. And um, there was going to be no mercy for me. It was simply a business transaction, nothing personal. They needed a guy to do a job. And I wasn't able to do the job they wanted done. And so I handed in my resignation. And it was, again, because um, I'd done it before, uh, rejected. But there came one Wednesday night where we had to get up as pastors and report to the church on all the great things we had done all year. And we hadn't done anything that year. I had canceled every major um, event from Easter egg hunts to Halloween you know, get downs or whatever you call them festivals. Uh, we hadn't done anything except for survive. And I couldn't get up there. And I told him that, and I, he says, well, what am I going to tell the board? And I said, you can tell them that you finally accepted my resignation before, while I still have a little bit of, of, uh, uh I don't know, uh, pride left. I guess that's not what I said, but something like that. And he said, okay. And, um, at that point I handed in my two week notice. I quit. And I was still embarrassed about what was going on. And, um, so I had the pastor announce that I was leaving for medical reasons. And I realized that when you leave a blank space, in something like that, like a sentence, like I'm leaving and here's, here's not why <laughs> here's, here's a blank space instead of a reason. I've learned that people fill it in with, 
with things darker than normal. Because why do pastors leave churches? Well, sometimes they leave, you know, like me and my wife did to try to downsize to be closer to family. Sometimes, but but the other reasons is they did something bad, <laughs> and um, so eventually I people kept asking me, and I started telling them that it was depression. And some people didn't seem to care. Some people judged. Some people understood. And, um, but I'll tell you one thing. It, it really didn't kick in hard depression like it did after, until after I quit because I became a loser. And I'll be honest, I still feel like a loser. It's been since you know i don't know it's been years we've been here five years six seven seven years and uh i still deal with with uh not having a job it still bugs me i i try to call myself a podcaster i try to call myself an artist i try to call myself a stay-at-home dad but none of those things are true uh Here's something I wrote, and then I'll, I'll stop this episode. Um, well, maybe we'll finish today. I don't know. This was from 10-03-2013. I'm so broken, my soul hurts. Tears always on the verge of spilling out of my eyes. People offer kind words about how God is involved and will be, but I have no response or feeling of comfort. My life is a story that has taken a ridiculous turn, like a movie with the wrong ending. I hope for a future where I look back on this time and see God's hand, but a whole other reality exists as well. A reality that says that God is done, that I am done, that I will be in emotional limbo forever, that my children will grow to forget the man I was and only be able to recall the waste that I am now, and that that just turned out to be true. I can't see anything good coming of this. I imagine a possible outcome where I minister to people with depression and or help the church as a whole to understand to deal how to deal with depressed people, but I don't want to do that for the rest of my life to be labeled the rest of my days altered forever by this hell. No, thank you. I don't know that I'll ever want to go back to ministry to throw my family into another group of people with their own problems, needs, faults, issues, manipulations, and their desire to control. To trust us to a series of stories and unsaid rules that influence the church and their expectations that I won't know about until after I've been there too long to just leave. Everyone runs out of grace. God doesn't, but that doesn't seem to matter because he's not physical. He's not doing the hiring and the firing. He's not controlling the people who accept and reject. Can his grace be experienced directly when everything points to him as the possible culprit? Can I be loved and healed while I'm torn and judged? The sad truth is I deserve this. I am not and never was a good person, much less a good pastor. A talented man, a gifted pastor, but not good. I hate people. I hate their needs. I hate going to hospitals. I hate the resistance to change, their inability to follow leadership and share in a vision. I hate the cliques and the pecking order, the politics and the favoritism. Pastors aren't supposed to hate these things. 
but I cannot accept this current status as the new reality, even if it is. I will go to my grave gravely disappointed in myself. I will never accept this as acceptable. I will consider myself a failure in life, a wasted person, and in heaven I will find a corner. I will sit there for eternity wishing there were shadows. But I can't see past it either. This is everything right now. It has affected and altered every single part of my life. I speak of depression the way others speak of their experience with Christ. And every time I begin to dare to hope that these things are better, and though I tell myself I'm not going to be optimistic, but I am, I'm both proven right and wrong, right to have accepted the worst and wrong for hoping to be wrong. And in the end, there is one. I will not be counted, or at the end, if there is one, I will not be counted faithful. If this was a test, I have failed before it's even over. Graded well before I've even handed it in. Job had it together. I do not. I have not and mostly will not. But how gracious is God? He deserves our best, but does he demand it? How much does depend on my performance? They would all say none. That always seems to be applied to non-Christians. What about those of us who don't have regular devotions and never have, have never been dis disciplined to pray every day, never had the self-control to get control of anything in myself? Why hasn't Christ changed my life like I hear he's changed others? Why didn't I fall in love with the word? Why couldn't I have had a honeymoon period with Jesus? My Christianity has been hard. I don't like most of it. I've experienced more disappointment than blessings, yet the few I've outweighed yet the few have outweighed the greater. I don't feel God's presence. I never have. I don't know what others are talking about. I've never felt anointed. I've never seen the Spirit use me. I've seen the effects of anointing, but never felt anything. But I sure do feel pain. It is very real, very present. And if I based my faith on my feelings, I would pray to the Lord of pain. I would serve the God of grief, and I would try to appease the spirit of suffering. The joy I have experienced has always been secondhand, meaning not directly from God. I love my wife, and I feel her love. My kids bring me joy. At times, some of the things I do give me a feeling of accomplishment or satisfaction. Ministry leaves me empty and set up for a fall. Hopelessness is horrible. It's not the absence of hope. There's a lot of hoping in hopelessness. It's the inability to fathom any possible outcome, God included. This is a faith you have in a God that may just not do anything. The reality that it is... <sighs> it's his prerogative to focus on other things, things more important, things that will reap a greater return on his investment. I've always believed that God was had something great for me. I think that's why conferences mess me up so bad. I thought I would be one of those. Even though I can't stand the whole setup, I wanted to be a valued resource. I wanted it to happen organically, not because I wanted it or manipulated it, but because I was doing a good job. Impossible. I wasn't doing a good job. 
I could fill a thousand pages with my suffering, but what's the point? Am I waiting for this time to pass, keeping myself distracted so I'm not completely miserable all the time, hoping to get back to normal and fearing the di that day at the same time? That What will I do when I'm well? I don't know. Depression isn't my only problem, as it turns out. When it goes to the background... It will become obvious that I have a broken heart. Not a feelings hurt broken, but a screwed up and doesn't work right broken. God heals broken hearts. I've heard that my whole life. But sometimes he keeps people broken. If I am one, I wonder if I'll ever do anything good again. So that stuff is still pretty dang real to me. And I've lived it now. And things haven't changed much. And it's it's tough. It's tough right now. So, I don't know if I lost my faith or not. I, I, I literally remember laying in bed in the fetal position... And feeling like I was trying to hold on to my faith, like physically, mentally, spiritually gripping it. And then letting go because I didn't have the energy or the power to, to, to hold on to it anymore. But then feeling a very sure thing that, that and a very real feeling of it not letting go of me. And realizing in that moment that my relationship with God has so little to do with me and my power <laughs> and whatever energy I think I bring to the table, it has so much to do with him. So I think that's where I'll leave it for now. I, I didn't expect this thing to be 500 episodes long but it's almost over I, I guess I could I could end it now if I just went a little longer I mean I wrote a book we moved to St. Louis because we looked around our world we didn't even pray about it we just looked around our world and we said where is God moving and we said well, he's moving in. He's moving in St. Louis with David Godbout. And we said, well, let's go join him there. And so we moved here. We we got the kids in school. My wife got a horrible job that kept her from us for most of the day, every single day, and every weekend for for at least two years. We rebuilt the Melvin from the inside. It's an old 100-year-old uh, theater. And um, even that I gave up on because I couldn't handle it anymore. And my friend David had to finish it himself. I had wrist surgery because partially the Melvin screwed up my wrist and also because I already had kind of carpal tunnel going on. 
I had butt surgery. That's kind of personal, unless you read, listen to my podcast, and then you know all about it. Uh, my wife and I went to couples counseling because of the hardships surrounding the, the bad job. And then our kids' school got stupid, and suddenly they were uh, not going to have um, the right kind of classes for our kids to continue learning. And so we tried to get my daughter into a, a good school, and it just wasn't working. And we thought we were going to move from the city out into the county, the suburbs. They call them the counties around here. And... um. And it turned out we didn't have to move. We found a a private school for Jenna and a public school for Jay that would take him. And now I'm just living with depression. And there's more good than bad. But the bad's still pretty bad. You know, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of wondering who I am and what I'm supposed to do with myself and Wondering if this is going to be forever, and if so, what does that mean? I still struggle with God. Um, my faith is strong, but me, well, I should say there's a lot of faith there. I don't know how strong it is, but I believe a lot more than I used to. Um, it just depends on which day you ask me. <laughs> because how how do you know? Um. If, if, if God heals, if you're not being healed and you know, how, how faithful can you be when all you want to do is be faithful, but you're robbed of the ability to, to do those things that you want to do. I mean, the situation I find myself in now is I just don't have energy. I don't have drive. And there's times I can force myself to do things like go on a float trip with my family or, or go on a vacation. I mean, everything, every single thing is a drain. Everything is hard, whether it's doing a chore for my wife, going on an errand, going to the stupid dentist, everything that is not sitting on my butt somewhere is a challenge. And it's been this way for all this time. And I don't know how God fits in all that. Because I want to do more than I'm doing. I want to do a lot more. It's like I said in in that journal entry that I will never settle and never think of this way of life as okay that I will consider myself a failure. And that's true. I'm never going to be okay with the way things are right now. I'm never going to relax and say, okay, just, just let yourself off the hook because I want it to be different. So uh, luckily I have great kids. I have awesome wife. I have great couple of podcasts, especially that story show. 
I get to do one with my son called Red School Bus. I have a great community of people that surround me, that believe in me, and I have you guys that listen to it, you know, the behind the behind the scenes stuff. And I'm 46, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still seeking God's will for my life. I, I just don't know what to do because another part of that journal entry was the part where it said after the depression kind of eases up, I still will be broken. And that's kind of where I'm at is I'm not laying in bed all day in pain and anxiety and anxiousness and, and, and just wrestling with existing. I'm not suicidal. I'm not in a, a deep dark hole anymore, but I am a broken person and I, I, I don't know what to do. My wife is talking to me about getting counseling, but that's when this COVID thing started and counseling did, you know, became a thing that is not an option for right now. Um, I mean, you could do it over the phone, but I don't want to talk about my stuff over the phone. I just don't. So this has been podcast my life and, and it's still an ongoing thing. It is, uh, I haven't given up. I mean, I know it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like I have, but I, like I tell you, I'm, I'm not settling for this. This is not okay. This is not where I want to be. And I still hope for, a, for an end to this story that is a good ending. And I appreciate you listening and, and paying attention and, and all that. We'll try to get back to normal weekly episodes. Um, after this because i've been missing talking about life and uh it i'm glad this is over so <laughs> it was hard so thank you for listening and uh we'll talk to you next time god bless <laughs>